Hello and welcome to Food for Thought, a podcast exploring the future of Australian agriculture. My name's Damien Morgan, I'm your host, and for each episode of Food for Thought, I'll be interviewing a leader, an innovator, or an entrepreneur, people with big ideas for the big challenges and opportunities that lie ahead for Australian farmers. Demand for food is expected to double in the next 30 years. The global population is predicted to hit 9 billion by 2050. It's 7.5 billion now. It was less than 1 billion in the year 1800. There's no more land or water to access, so what changes are needed? What opportunities will come? Will Australia lead or follow? It's all food for thought, and it's exactly what we explore on this podcast. In this episode, I sit down with Ewan Murdoch. One of the biggest issues uh, facing agriculture is the succession of family businesses or family farms. And we've had a family council for 30 years, at least, where we sit down and talk about where we're going as a family, what do they want, you know, and discuss the undiscussables. What is the undiscussable? Um, and that process takes years. In this episode, I sit down with Ewan Murdoch, one of Australia's most successful business people. Ewan's probably still best known for having founded Heron Pharmaceuticals along with his wife Kay in 1984 and growing that business into the success story that it was, selling it in 2003 to Sigma Pharmaceuticals, capping what remains one of Australia's great entrepreneurial stories. It wasn't an easy road and in the interview we refer to a very high profile extortion attempt which was a very difficult time for the family and the business. We also talk about the fact that Hazel Hawke was the face and spokesperson of the business and it's great to get that backstory of his time at Heron Pharmaceuticals. What's not as well known is that Ewan is a country boy born and bred on a sheep property in central Victoria. Today he and Kay live at Nindawimba, an iconic cattle property in the scenic rim region of southeast Queensland near Bow Desert where they run a very successful beef cattle operation. Ewan was very generous with his time. We sat down on the verandas at Nindawimba and uh, spoke through his business career, spoke about his current venture in beef cattle. There was some great insight, particularly around the area of planning and the discipline of bringing, bringing business processes to the farming. I think for family farmers listening to this, there's some really great insight with regard to succession planning in particular. It was an inspiring conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Please enjoy this interview with Ewan Murdoch. Ewan Murdoch, thanks for joining me on Food for Thought. We're here at uh, Nindouan Bar uh, near Bow Desert, which in itself holds an iconic position in the Australian pastoral industry, this beautiful homestead. You've come mm. to it in the last 13 years, but life began on a farm in southern Australia in Victoria. In, yeah, in Victoria, near Bendigo. So you were a family farming operation back then? Uh, we were. I was the youngest of six. Um, I had a merino stud in my name when I was 10 years of age. Really only had Ted Hughes, but I thought that was pretty important. But our roots go back to, uh, to the land, yes. And then it was a family tragedy, I believe, that saw you leave there. Um, yes, to... my father died when I was last year at school. Uh, so with death duties in those days meant I really couldn't go back to the farm, so I decided I'd do vet instead. Um, I wasn't a good student, and so um, I was ingraciously kicked out of Melbourne University Vet School after three years and uh, decided to move to Queensland and get a bit serious about our lives. So I was married at that stage to Kay and um, came back to Queensland to do um, to finish a vet degree. And uh, But... 
your life wasn't to be in vet science. It was related to it. You founded um, Hair and Pharmaceuticals at some point after that. After that, yes. I, um, I, I looked at the life of, of a large general practitioner in Queensland and I thought there was a gentleman by the name of Peter Darvell who some of the listeners may be aware of. I know him very well. Do you? Well, yeah. Peter was a... You know, you go through life and you meet some people who have an influence on your, on your life's journey and, and he was one of those. And I remember travelling with him in the car one day and I said, Peter, what's, what's your life look like as a large general practitioner? He said, what do you mean? And I said, well, how many miles do you do? Because it was miles in those days in, in a year. And he said, oh, about 40 or 50,000. And I did a quick mental calc and worked out that's about 35 to 45 hours a week sitting in a car. And I said, what's your practice look like? And he said, uh, 90% strain 19 TB and preg testing, or 95%. So when I was driving back to Brisbane that night from Chinchilla, I thought, mm, no, I don't think I want to be a, a large oral practitioner in Queensland. And we'd settled in Queensland at that stage. So uh, I went back to uni and did a commerce degree part-time. Peter actually, he looks like an Olympic, he looked like an Olympic athlete. He was mm. that fit and strong from preg testing or wrestling horses. So yes. uh, it, was a, it's, it's a, it was a tough job, no oh, Very tough job. And long hours, and um, not wasn't wasn't for me. So out of vet into business, um, mm. uh, at which you proved to be very have continued to prove to be very very successful. So tell us about Heron Pharmaceuticals. How did it come about that you founded well Heron in the first place? Uh, we started Heron uh, in about 1971-1972, and we distributed some dental products and a few other things like that. And then I came across a company called J.C. Marconi that manufactures that famous old bush oil called Goenerol. And um, I got to be friendly with, with, with the people of the Marconi family. And I said, if you ever want to sell, please let us know. And they did. And so um, I became the head Goenerol in 1982. And then in 1984, we decided to set up our own manufacturing facility to make Goenerol, but other pharmaceuticals as well. And uh, basically, we, we set ourselves up to manufacture our own products and products for other companies. And obviously, that was, you know, history tells us that was a very successful venture. Mm. Um, you know, probably best known in the eyes of the average member of the public for some of the advertising featuring Hazel Hawk. Mm. How did that come about? <clears throat> we were trying at one stage to describe the personality of Heron. Uh, and we said... Um, Heron is feminine, uh, resilient, uh, loyal, hardworking, and would and would stick with you in the good times and the bad times. And so we said, who looks like that? Well, who's the person? Who's got? Who's that? Nice. We said Hazel. So I wrote to the wrote to her and asked if she'd be interested in joining us as our spokesperson, which she did. And we had a wonderful association with her and Sue, their, his, her daughter probably for 10 years and she was fabulous a great person how important was that so marketing obviously heron was a, a big part mm. of its identity was its australian ownership as well mm. and how important was hazel to the marketing of heron through those years oh very important i think it was i mean it was a, it was a slow but sure step the, the the thing that probably resonated with the australian consumer with hazel but also the Australian, we, we, with Hazel, we were saying Australian made, basically, and a lot of companies do use that term Australian made, and quite rightfully so. We changed that to Australian owned and said our competitor, which most people would know was Panadol, was foreign owned. 
And that really resonated with the Australian consumer. Um, and so that and Hazel made a huge difference to, to our market. And at one point, Dick Smith gave you a hand as well from a marketing perspective. Yes, that was after our extortion when we went back to market and uh, Dick came on board and, and, and endorsed us. Uh, wonderfully. He just phoned up and said, can I help? And um, we went and shot an ad and um, he was a spokesperson as long as Hazel went on that um, return to market after our extortion. So a lot of people remember that, that extortion event. Mm. What, what was it that drew Dick, drew Dick to that? Did he, he offered to help? He was interested in supporting a fellow Australian company or how did it all play out? I, uh, yeah, I think that um, an Australian family company battling, we had our back to the wall. I mean, we, we very nearly went bankrupt in that time. It was, it was tough. And, um, and I think a lot of people, we received thousands and thousands of letters of support from people. And they just saw an Australian family company that was battling, doing it tough. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, I think the whole story resonated. And so you ride that out. Um, Heron went on to continue to be very successful. You sold it in 2003. 2003, that's right. And your focus then shifted back to farming again. Yeah, Yeah, basically we had a family meeting and we said, do you think we should buy a farm and return to our roots? And there was pretty unanimous support that we wanted to do, that we should. So we said we wanted to be... We have two kids and uh, seven grandkids, and we wanted to be within reasonable striking, excuse me, distance of them. So we said we wanted to buy an iconic property within two hours drive of Brisbane that I could work as a farm. I didn't want to sit and watch the grass grow, and and we were fortunate enough that Nindawimba came on the market, and it's just the most wonderful. And it was a, it is a wonderful, but it was an unbelievably run-down property, and so we got stuck into it. And here we are, you're not just running it, you know, passively as the landed gentry. You're, you're at the cutting edge of um, genetic cha- uh, improvements. You're doing mm. all sorts of artificial breeding. There's a whole strategy in the beef program here. Mm. So productivity gain. So um, talking generally about the need to improve productivity in farming, um, mm. you've brought real business principles to this process. How mm. important has it been to you to, to follow something more than just, um, you know, what might be seen as traditional beef production yeah i mean one of the things the crows i've tried to live by is make a difference <clears throat> excuse me so we thought when we bought nandia what are we going to do and we thought we'd we have what we call a BHAG, a big hairy audacious goal and we thought we'd try and transform the northern beef industry using genetics and so that led us to a contract with ia company uh, and then led us to breeding our ultra blacks and um brangus cattle but, I mean, and using genetics to do that. But, you know, I think we talked earlier about what are the challenges to agriculture generally uh, to meet global demand for our products over the next 20 years and how are we going to do it? And unquestionably, one of the ways to do that will be through technology and the application of, of all the technologies which are becoming available, and particularly in the genomic space and that area in particular. And I mentioned to you earlier, we, we, we sex embryos, we split embryos. We can now, we're in the process working with University of Queensland, um, doing biopsies on seven-day-old embryos and getting predictive EBVs. So what that means in, is that the reality is that a producer can do, when this technology is proven, 
the, a producer will be able to do his first draft on a seven-day-old embryo rather than on a 18-year-old, uh, not 18-year-old, an 18-month-old bull or, or heifer. So I can uh, attempt to sort of explain that to anyone not initiated with the beef industry. Northern Australia, well known for being hot and having ticks. So Brahmin cattle from Africa up yep. there are dominant and they've changed the landscape of the beef industry since coming into Australia. Um, mm. Angus cattle, British in origin, um, mm. better known for performance, fertility uh, mm. and meat eating. So you're combining those two, um, uh, Boss Indicus and Boss Taurus cattle, to produce a higher quality um, animal in northern Australia. Is that a fair summary? Oh, yeah, don't, that is. I mean, the, the, the decision matrix or tree from our perspective is undoubtedly Brahman transformed the north, unquestionable. What's happening, however, though, is that, that the breed's losing its fertility. As, they, as there's an inverse relationship between structure and fertility, the animals are getting bigger, the fertility's going south. So if you accept that, argument then the question is what do you do about it and you, you introduce other genetics much of uh, Australian agriculture is still family farms there's a, there seems to be an increased emphasis or interest from the corporate sector in mm. investing in farming I'll, I'll come back to family farms in a sec but um, where do you see corporate agriculture do you see it playing institutions and institutional money playing a greater role in uh, Australian ag in the future I think it's inevitable that that will be the case. Um, desirable, in fact, probably. Um, if you, if you th go back 20 years ago, if you are a dairy farmer, if you had 50 dairy cows, you could make a living. Now you need 350 or 500 to make a living. What's that figure going to look like in another 10, 20 years' time? Uh, the capital investment to be able to run on scale is critical. And I think scale is uh, you know, an important part in, in, in agriculture. So, uh, sorry. So I see, I see that the growth, corporate's growing, there's no doubt about that, um, to the expense of um, family farms? Unfortunately, yes. I, I've got no doubt that a family-run business, whether it be in the city or whether it be in the country, is much, much more efficient than a corporate. Um, just the ethos and the values of most family businesses um, people live up, look up to, but um, with what we're seeing in corporate behaviour nowadays, there's a lot of people who aren't happy with the way corporates are um, behaving. So is there a lesson there to family farmers that scale's needed, so um, you need to look to grow? Uh, yeah, I think you need to look to grow. There's no doubt about that. I'm a great advocate of the planning process. We've always been sit down, not only having a one-year plan, but a five-year plan and... and um, I just sent a note through to, to Nick, Nick Cameron, who's our manager, saying we need to revisit where we're going to be in another 10 years' time. What does this business look like? What will be the role of technology? And, and then once we have a clear picture about that, you sort of plan how do you get, what's the journey look like? Uh, and there was, I was driving back from Brisbane one night listening to Radio National and I had this fellow talking about the role of planning and he said only... Only 10% of people actually have a plan for their life. I find this amazing, but this is, this is what he was saying. Only 10% of people had a plan for their life, and of that 10% who planned, only 50% of those put it to writing. So five out of 100 actually have a written plan of their life's journey, whether it be financial, personal, whatever. And uh, this was an American, so his, his measure was that of uh, material gain, and he said... The people who didn't plan got a unit of one. The people who did plan but didn't write it down got a, 
a unit of 10, and the people who had a plan and wrote it down got a unit of 100. A lot of uh, farmers will say, well, how do you plan for seasons, you know? And you factor that in, I'm assuming. Mm. So irregular seasons, the likelihood of drought, do you take a long-term view and, and factor that in as being... Well, you've got to. Otherwise, I think it's a cop-out, you know, to say, oh, I can't plan because, it, you know, the weather's... We're at the beck and call of our weather. I mean, you've just got to take, take the variations of the weather and sometimes you're going to kick a goal, sometimes you won't. Um, but it's better than doing nothing. And, and, and that sort of involves... If you sit down and work out a plan of where you're going and then you share that with your family, then everybody's in the same boat. But if, 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 you, don't, if you don't share it, if you don't share it around, people don't know where you're going. What about succession planning? Well, that's another one. I mean, that's, I think one of the biggest issues uh, facing agriculture is the succession of family businesses or family farms. And uh, my, my experience in that regard is we, we've had a family council for my oldest son now. Sandy is um, 46, I think. We would have had a, we've had a family council for 30 years at least where we sit down and talk about where we're going as a family and what do they want. And my suggestion to anyone who's thinking of doing that would be one, start early, but it's not too late to start late. Two, um, don't get your lawyers or your accountants to do it. Get somebody who's got some empathy for, for you and, and more particularly for the kids. Try and establish what the children want rather than you know, and discuss the undiscussables. What is the undiscussable? Um, and that process takes years. But um, and write it down. Write down. Try and work out what you're going to do. And so you're saying don't get a lawyer involved. Do, do, you, do you get a third party? Have someone in there to facilitate? Or yeah, I would have somebody to facilitate. I mean, it, yes, you do have lawyers involved. You do have accountants involved. But that's the second pass. Yes. The first pass is finding out what everybody wants to do. The philosophy of it all. Yeah, the philosophy and so forth. And, you know, this, I think the succession has moved from going from everything to the eldest son in the traditional, the old ways, uh, to everything being split equally. Um, that's the best way to do it. Um, that's not necessarily, in the case of agriculture, the best way to go. Um, because if you, if you split a farm... If you've got six kids, as we did in our case, um, if, if the farm had been split six ways, we wouldn't have ended up with anything. I mean, we would have ended up with six uneconomic farms. Um, and some of the banks are doing some really interesting... Uh, Rabobank's doing some really interesting work in the States in, in family farms. And they've formed a fund... I'm not sure whether this is appropriate for this conversation, but, but I, I found it fascinating. They've, they've now, I believe, have 300 farms which they've invested in, family farms, where, for instance, is just as an example, the three children, uh, two out, one wants to stay. Uh, the one that stays, stays on as a farm manager. Um, the kids, the other two, received a capital distribution. Um, Rabo's got two or three hundred farms in this back. They in in this arrangement, they do all the back office work. Uh, the farmer runs his own farm. It's not told what to do, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I think that's one good way of, of maintaining uh, the, the farm. Surely, a big, a big issue, isn't it? So many farming farming families or agricultural families come to this hurdle 
And for whatever reason, it's a big reason why far too many of those businesses fail. Mm. They, they can't sort out or they can't see um, a way forward. So um, who, who can help with this? I mean, you, you mentioned lawyers and accountants. Uh, they've got sometimes a vested interest. Um, finding someone who's got experience is not easy. Yeah, it is I, a fraud I area. I don't think it's that the, the lawyers and accountants, I suppose that some would have vested interests. I, I, I think it's, it's important to connect with the heart rather than the brain to start off with. What, what, what does, what's the emotional state? What do people want to do? Um, let's clear the... Are there any undiscussables? Get some of those on the table early rather than later so people know where they stand. Um, you know, people work on assumptions about what dad or what mum wants to do and dad works on the assumption what the kids want to do. Well, have, you, have they ever sat down and said, well, what do you want to do? Find out. And then when you've got some better fix on that, you can sit down and say, okay, well, let's, maybe we can structure it this way rather than saying this is what we're going to do, this is the way we're going to structure it. Oh, by the way, does that, are you happy with that? And, and then they feel as if they're dragged kicking and screaming to, um, to, to that outcome. So I'd be certain <coughs> there's, a, there's, there's a number of people listening to this who are facing this exact challenge mm. and wondering... You know, what, who's, what's the phone call I make? Who's the person I go to? Hmm. Can you distill it down to any advice? What would be... Well, I mean, nowadays this might sound contradictory. A number of accountancies, accountancy practices and lawyers do have people who specialise, non-accountants, in, in that role. Um, there's, a, there's a wonderful lady in Wagga in New South Wales who's done some... But she's retiring. She's done some, some wonderful work in that space. Um, you know, you've got to use the, the Google search engine. Yeah. Just, just make some inquiries. What about uh, businesses have boards? If they don't have a, uh, you know, full governance or if they don't have a, an official board, they often set up advisory boards to mm. talk about strategy and to plan. That seems to be less of the case in farming families. Is that something that you would encourage family farms to do? Take third-party advice on... I'm I'm a I'm a great one for the collective knowledge of of a few is better than just the autocrat, um, but ultimately you've got the the farm the farm, either if it's an autocratic person or if it's a family that works together they're the ones who make the call. However, getting input from other people just to get their sharing ideas and is I think is very powerful. I mean that's. Uh, that's been the basis of my whole business career is about listening to other people. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not the smartest person in this room. So one of the challenges is, of course, I guess a beef farmer in Queensland has a completely different set of issues to a sheep farmer in Tasmania or an olive grower in South Australia. Um, so how do we... All those people very well intended, all those people doing their best uh, from their perspective, how do you get greater unity? And Well, that's a challenge. And, and look... There are so many people who put their body and soul into, into the industry and, and, and trying to improve it, etc., etc. Uh, so the question is very difficult. And it's, there's a saying that you can't take two jumps to cross a chasm. You can only do it once, in one hit. And I think that um, there's, a, there's a fellow by the name of Peter Sengi who's written a lot of books about learning organisations. And he quotes the example, and I think it applies to either a company, an industry, or a government. And that is, if you think of a balloon, blow up a balloon. 
and you're trying to put things through the biz, push things through government or through the industry, and the, and the balloon is the industry. So you push into the balloon, and the harder you push into the balloon, the more the balloon pushes back. How do you get through? How do, and, and his argument is, let the air out of the balloon so it can get more through. I mean, as simplistic as that sounds, I think that's what we need to do. We need to get rid of the noise, and we need to take the pressure out and revisit what we're trying to achieve. So farmers can unite and collectively um, have a stronger voice. At the same time, presumably, they can take their own view of the world and try to market their own product better. Hmm. Um, so things like branding product, getting closer to the client, uh, the end consumer, rather than being the price taker from the wholesalers and the, the big retailers, what's the opportunity for individual farmers or producers to brand up their own product and promote it? The, the opportunity is there, and I, I'd see that opportunity in two ways. Uh, there's the domestic opportunity, and there's the international opportunity. And I'll speak to the, the domestic opportunity first. I mean, in Australia, we are that Woolworths and Coles have such a strong position in the, in, in, the, in the food industry that it's very difficult to niche market a product in Australia. Um, there are undoubtedly people who are doing it and doing it very successfully. But for a, a corporate, for instance, like um, a medium-sized agricultural beef producer or a crop producer or wheat producer, whatever, very difficult. So, hence, we become commodity traders and then we're price takers rather than price makers and we're all aware of the downsides of that. So, domestically, yes, you can, but very difficult. I mean, we started off in my earlier career with Heron with it basically being an East brand. And over a 25-year period, we grew it to be the market leader in, in grocery. And that's a slow and painful and challenging process. But it can be done. Uh, internationally, I think, with if you look to our new neighbours and the expansion that's happening there, and this links in, I think, to a certain extent with the, with the move to corporatisation or bigger family farms, that there is room for companies like AOCO and CPC and McDonald's for instance, to market their own brand in those countries as a niche, uh, thereby basically being much more in control of the price. Uh, that's a critical thing. and you know, we, we need, as an industry, as well as individual operations, to have more transparency and control along the supply chain, and that's one way of doing that. So um, transparency meaning, at the end, the end user in Asia or wherever it is understands exactly where that product has been sourced from, where it was produced. Is that what you oh, mean? Well, it's probably more holistic than that, Damon. I think it's more about the supply chain in the context is go to woe, but it's not just, it's not just about price. It's, not, it's, it's about... My philosophy has, been, has always been... How do we make one plus one equal in three? So if we can work with our clients, supply them with better genetics, and they win, that's a one plus one. Traditionally, I think, in a lot of the Australian agricultural industry, the supply chain is more about if I can get one and a half, and you get half, that's a win-lose. That's, that's not sustainable. And I think that there's things like finance, transparency costing, uh, technology, working together to, to, to bring new products to the market, new technologies to the market. That's where I think the supply chain needs to open up 
working to go, together cooperatively rather than being competitive. And what's our big strategic advantage? A lot of talk about the clean, green reputation of Australian produce. You referred to the, um, you know, our near neighbours with the burgeoning middle class in, in Asia. Um, how important is that reputation for having clean, green produce going to be? Because we're not the only ones who see that opportunity. Oh, no, we're not the only ones, but I think we're, we're uniquely placed geographically in the context of our environment uh, and also our geography in relation to our closeness to those markets. Um, we, don't, we don't have borders with other countries where we can get contaminations or other diseases coming in. Um, so as a consequence, you know, our aqueous and our, our, our management of our borders in the context of disease management and things like that are so critical. But we don't have the levels of pollution that we have in, in, in a lot of our neighbours that they have, um, you know, the degradation that's occurred over many years. We have our own, for sure, um, but, and, but we need to protect um, passionately you know, our environment. And I think that that brings to, to the front the sort of urban-rural divide where now, you know, a generation ago, most people who lived in the city had a cousin or a brother or a sister or somebody who lived on the land. Now, that doesn't apply. So the connectivity and the, and the understanding by city dwellers of um, what we country people do uh, is just not there. And as domestically as well as internationally, that interface needs to be much more open so that people have got an appreciation. I mean, people on the land worship their land. They, they respect their cattle or their livestock. Um, it's only a very, very, very small percentage of people who abuse, abuse the, the, their land and their animal. Um, so the good side of agriculture does not get heard very often. And I think that there's a, that's a generational change. We need to, the, the industry needs to communicate with the urban dwellers what we do, what we're passionate about, how we care for what we, what we grow, etc., etc. That's vital. So, broadly speaking, um, your level of optimism for agriculture moving forward. So, family farmers, um, or corporate farmers for that, that matter, um, what do you see the short to, the mid to long term looking like for farmers? Uh, I think good. I mean, I wouldn't say, I don't subscribe to it's going to be, you know, the wool, another wool boom, etc., etc. But I think there's going to be good, steady, constant growth. Um, and, and, the, and the rewards, sorry, I'll say that, the rewards for people who do the planning, do the work. Um, you know, I, I put the kiss, kiss principle: just keep doing this, keep doing the simple things, and keep doing them and doing them again and doing them well. But also embracing technology and not necessarily being at the bleeding edge. I mean, I think we're at the bleeding edge, but they should be more at the leading edge with technology and applying it to. Um, to the land. I mean, with drones, with what's happening in, with artificial intelligence and so it's going to transform the face of farming. So we've covered a lot of ground. We've talked about the importance of planning. We've talked about embracing technology. Is there any one piece of advice you might offer to anyone on the farming game? Uh, try and learn something new every day. A continual journey. Yeah, it is a continual journey. Keep, keep improving, keep doing it better. Um, it's you know you need to take quantum leaps, but in the end you usually get there incrementally. 
Ewan Murdoch, thanks for joining us on Food for Thought. Thanks, Simon. Subscribe to the Food for Thought podcast by searching Food for Thought Australia in your podcast app or social media or go to our website, foodforthought.net.au.